we as a community of Villanova University are committed to the same ideals of fostering our talents and gifts to benefit our brothers and sisters who are less fortunate. As we come together as a community to begin this celebration of this weekend, it is far more than just a uh, day of service on Saturday. When this uh, celebration was inaugurated seven years ago, it was inaugurated to celebrate both our academic life, our spiritual life, and our service life. So we come together to begin that process tonight um, with a kind of academic part of it. And we are very uh, privileged to have our speaker tonight to come to Villanova University just to uh, share with us her ideas on health care. I, I just want to, um, as we begin this celebration, I want to thank you, first of all, for being here, for your time and your commitment. Um, I'm sure the presentation will be very lively. And uh, I had the opportunity of uh, having dinner with Susan, so it's, uh, she, I don't think she'll put any of you to sleep. She's a, a very lively speaker. But um, I also remind you of the fact that when the talk is over and there's a question and answer period, question and answer does not mean it's time to leave. So um, I ask you to stay for that part of it because sometimes that's where really the biggest discussion takes place is when the questions and answers are, are given. So thank you for being here. Thank you for um, taking the time this evening to join us for this conversation on health care. And um, as we as a Villanova community begin, let us uh, celebrate the legacy and the commitment of St. Thomas of Villanova. Elizabeth. Good evening. I'm Elizabeth Dowdell, a professor here at the College of Nursing, and it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Susan Densner. Susan Densner is the editor-in-chief of Health Affairs, the nation's leading journal on health policy and an on-air analyst on health issues with the PBS NewsHour with Jim Lehrer. At Health Affairs, Ms. Densner oversees the journal's team of nearly 30 editors and other staff in producing the journal's monthly publication and website. She is one of this nation's most respected health and health policy journalists. She is also, no surprise, a recipient of many honors and awards. In 2007, when she was with the NewsHour, she received the American Society on Aging National Medical Award for a two-part series on our current understanding of Alzheimer's disease. And in 2005, she received for her April and December pieces on Wounded Soldier and Wounded Warrior, the 2005 Award for Excellence in Healthcare Journalism from the Association of Healthcare Journalists. Prior to joining the NewsHour in 1998, Susan Densner was Chief Economic Correspondent and Economics Columnist for US News and World Report, where she served from 1987 until 1997. And before joining U.S. World and News Report, she was at Newsweek, where she was a senior writer covering business news. Susan Densner has a lot of service, too. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She serves on the board of directors of the International Rescue Committee, the nonprofit organization that works in relief, rehabilitation, protection, 
post-conflict development and resettlement services for those uprooted or affected by violent conflict and oppression worldwide. At IRC, she heads the board's health committee, which oversees the organization's health programs in 25 countries. She's also a board member on the board of directors at the Global Health Council, the world's largest membership organization of groups involved in global health, serving as secretary of the board and head of the board's nominating committee. She also serves on the Kaiser Commission on Medicaid and the Uninsured, as well as the advisory board of the California Health Benefit Review Committee, and is a member of the National Advisory Committee for the Robert Wood Johnson's Foundation Investigator Awards in Health Policy Research. She is also a former member of the board of directors on the Friends for the National Institute for Nursing Research. A graduate of Dartmouth College, Susan Detzner holds an honorary Master's of Art degree from Dartmouth and an honorary Doctorate of Humane Letters from Muskeskum College in New Concord, Ohio. She is a board member on the Board of Overseers at Dartmouth Medical School. She has served on the Dartmouth College Board of Trustees and was the first woman ever to serve as chair of Dartmouth's board. She's also a former trustee of Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center and in 2007, she received the Dartmouth Alumni Award, the highest honor given to Dartmouth alumni for service to the college. Our St. Thomas of Villanova lecture is an opportunity for the university committee and community to examine an important and timely issue. Her talk, The Neediest Among Us, U.S. Healthcare, the Poor, and the Uninsured, is going to be fantastic. And it is my pleasure to introduce to you tonight this year's 2012 speaker, Susan Densner. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And you, as you can see, my mother got to Elizabeth and made her read my entire biography tonight. I apologize for that uh, so long. And thank you, Father Peter, for your gracious comments. It's terrific to be here with you. It's my first visit to the Villanova campus, so I'm just thrilled. And both my husband and my son made sure that I knew what powerhouses uh, you all are in basketball. So I'll come back next year for March Madness and uh, watch it all with you. Anyway, it's terrific, as I say, to be here. And uh, especially on such an important occasion, I, uh, a campus that really can hold up the notion of service and shine a light on it is really uh, the kind of campus some many, many Americans would want to be associated with. It really does speak to uh, that word up there, caritas, right? That very important notion that we uh, really do have an obligation as citizens to give back and to, uh, as I say, to sort of hold this up is a, a very um, important thing for the university to be doing and I'm very honored to be a part of it. So as Elizabeth said, my topic tonight is the neediest among us, US healthcare and the poor and the uninsured. And I just wanted to give you a little flavor why I picked that title, The Neediest Among Us. It actually uh, occurred to me when I was reading through the Supreme Court decision back in June that upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, that, that law that was passed in 2010. Some people call it Obamacare. Uh, as you know, the court ruled in June that uh, most of the law was indeed constitutional. But there was an interesting twist on that decision, which has uh, affected the Medicaid program. And there the court essentially said, 
Well, Medicaid can be expanded, but only subject to certain limits. I'll say more about that later. But what uh, Chief Justice Roberts, the head of the Supreme Court, wrote in his opinion, one of the reasons why he was troubled by that provision of the law, he said, under the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid is transformed into a program to meet the health care needs of the entire non-elderly population with income below 133% of the poverty level. That's a complicated phrase. I'll explain more later about what that means. What he went on to say then is, it is no longer a program to care for the neediest among us but rather an element of a comprehensive national plan to provide universal health insurance coverage. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because it means that if you are at the poverty level or below, you're somehow needy, but if you're just above the poverty level, you're not the neediest among us anymore. And I thought, well, what does that say about how we feel about everybody who doesn't have health care now needs to have health care or health coverage, whether they're needy or not. And it really plays into the same argument we're having as a country now over who's deserving of support from the rest of us and who's not. Just to explain a little bit about what we're talking about there, 133% of the federal poverty level, which I'll explain later is the new th threshold uh, for Medicaid, is about $14,000 a year for an individual. So. It's not being a millionaire. Uh, and so the Chief Justice, in effect, was saying, if you're making $14,000 a year as a single person, you're no longer among the neediest among us. This is a different ballgame. And that's, as I say, what got me thinking about uh, some of the questions I'm going to address tonight. So who are America's needy or poor anyway? How do we decide who's going to be considered needy or poor and who we're going to help? What's the health status of those people? Um, what other factors are linked to poverty that also contribute to poor health? Then a related question, who are America's uninsured, these people now that we're attempting to help uh, through the Affordable Care Act? What's the connection, uh, if any, between poverty and uninsurance? And then finally, how do we meet the health care needs of the poor and the uninsured today and what should we do in the future? And what are some of the arguments now that we're having as a country about that, playing into the presidential election and probably playing out beyond the presidential election as well? So to start with, who are these needy or the poor? Well, the dictionary definition, of course, says poor is having little or no wealth, few or no possessions, uh, skip down humble, you could have a, be a poor spirit, uh, you might be eliciting or deserving a pity or pitiable. Uh, you might have little or no wealth. Uh, and then if we look at needy, the needy definition is lacking the necessities of life, very poor. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. We all, we all get that. When it comes to deciding who's poor in the country, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau uh, looks at that, and they actually look at people's income. Uh, and you, as you can see, these are uh, numbers that were just released uh, within the last couple of weeks by the Census Bureau. You can see in that red circle there on the right, the top one, we have a, an estimated 46 million Americans now who are considered to be in poverty. 46 million, and of course we're a country of somewhat higher than 300 million 
Americans at the moment. So that gives us a national poverty rate of about 15% of the population, who we agree to call the people in poverty. Now, again, as I mentioned, that is a, a standard that is set by the federal government in terms of income. And here are the poverty guidelines for the 48 contiguous states and the District of Columbia. There actually are slightly different standards for both Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, so if you, if you look at that, you'll see for a household of one, you are deemed to be in poverty if you have income below $11,000 a year. If you're a household of two, it's 15,000. A household of three, it's below 19,000 a year. That's how we set those official federal poverty standards, federal poverty guidelines. And if we look at this uh, in comparison to what most people in the country make, these are also uh, rather new numbers out of the Census Bureau, you can see that the median household income in the country is now about $50,000 a year. Now that's the medium. So it means half the people in the country are making more than that, half the people in the country are making less than that. And so if you look at a family of three that was living at the federal poverty level, they would be earning about $19,000 a year now. So you can see they are below half of, what, of the median income. So those are folks who by any stretch of the imagination are, uh, I would argue, are pretty clearly the neediest among us. They're at the bottom uh, level of the income scale. And as you can see, one major problem in this country is that from 1967 to 2011, uh, stated in 2011 dollars, median income just hasn't grown all that much in this country. Uh, and that's another major issue that particularly has affected those on the bottom. Because in addition to incomes not growing very much, we've also had lots of widening income inequality, particularly in the last uh, 25 years. Now, what gets tricky is definitions of income differ. The Census Bureau calls uh, this household income that I uh, described earlier, they basically don't count a lot of things that some people say you should count for income. For example, all forms of welfare assistance that are received by individuals in about 70 different programs don't get counted. So if you're getting, for example, food stamps, that doesn't get counted. If you're on the WIC program, the Women's Infants and Children program, which is a nutrition-oriented program for those folks. Uh, if you're in public housing, uh, and in fact you're getting subsidized housing, those don't count. So some people say, well, that those federal poverty statistics don't fully capture uh, what some of these people are getting in terms of other benefits. That's true. So you just have to have a mental picture that some of these people uh, who are, we consider poor are also getting some of these benefits in addition to their money income, which is what the federal poverty level captures. Now, some other people go on to argue, well, you know, the poor are really doing a lot better than we think. And a couple of folks who've argued this recently are Robert Rector and Rachel Sheffield at the Heritage Foundation in Washington. And they have observed that for most Americans, if you say the word poverty, that suggests really near destitution, inability to have nutritious food, have clothing, or even reasonable shelter. But they go on to say that only a small number of those 46 million people classified as poor by the Census Bureau really fit that description. And they go on to point out some other things. For example, two-thirds of the poor, they say, have at least one DVD player 
70% of them have a VCR. More than half of poor families with children have a video game system, half have a personal computer, and 43% of them have internet access. So that's hardly being destitute, they say. In addition, 80% of the poor have air conditioning, and 92% of them have a microwave. Uh, three quarters of them have a car or a truck. 31% have two or more cars or trucks. And about two thirds have cable or satellite TV. So they go on, and then they go on to talk about food. They point to an agriculture survey that says that 96% of poor parents say their children were never hungry at any time during the year because they couldn't afford food. And 83% of poor families reported having enough food to eat. So I say even hunger isn't particularly an issue for most poor people in America. So they argue that the government definition of poverty doesn't provide any information on the actual living conditions of people identified as poor. So we really need to rethink uh, our own mindset about who's poor in America and what being poor in America really means. What there, I think there is wide agreement on is that there is really a range of living conditions within the population of people that we say are on poverty. Most poor families are relatively well housed, particularly if you compare us, uh, the poor people here in the United States, to say poor people in many poor nations in Africa or Southeast Asia or what have you. Only a small minority, relatively speaking, are homeless. And although most poor families are well fed and have a fairly stable food supply, there are a sizable minority that have temporary food shortages uh, at various times during the year in particular. So we have to have a kind of a gradation in our understanding of poverty in America. And most people, I think, would, would, would agree with that. But there's another thing that people agree on as well, which is that when it comes to health, it's a different equation. Health is very unevenly distributed across the US population. And health insurance is largely unaffordable to most poor individuals and families. And many of them wouldn't have it except for Medicaid. So it's not like having a DVD or a VCR or a car or the internet or air conditioning. When it comes to health, there really is a population of people in America who are poor. They are poor in health and they are poor in their access to health care. Now, lots of Americans have poor health as we know. We know right now that two-thirds of American adults are obese or overweight. We know that 28% of American adults are physically inactive. One out of five American adults are still smoking. Now that's way down from what used to be the case, one out of two uh, several decades ago, but it's still a high number. 36% uh, of Americans live in environments of high stress and as we know, one in five of us is over the age of 55. Um, we know that those uh, conditions are often very much correlated to our behaviors, uh, whether we are physically active or not, are we eating well or not. And as you can see from the pie chart on the right, um, this is a pie chart that explains what are, what are the contributing factors to people dying early, dying before their life expectancy. And you can see behavioral patterns are about 40% of the cause of that premature death. 
They outstrip even genetic predispositions, which are only about 30%. And our social circumstances also play a role in that. Are we living in a poor neighborhood or a wealthier neighborhood? Environmental exposure, did we grow up next to a toxic waste dump? Uh, and see, only about 10% of our premature death is due to not having health care. These other things are much bigger drivers of our overall health status. And that gets to what people describe as the social determinants of health. What are some of the big underlying factors that really do much more to determine what your health status is in life? And you can see the list there. Your income and your income, the income distribution makes a difference. Your level of education, whether you're employed or not, what your working conditions are like. Early childhood development. And now when we say early childhood, we mean really early childhood. We mean even in the womb, because the latest science shows, for example, that if your mother is, uh, has poor nutrition or, for example, has diabetes when you are in the womb, it is more likely that you will have diabetes. If your mother is obese, it is more likely that you will be obese. So we know that early childhood development has a big bearing now on your health. Food insecurity clearly plays a role. Housing, is your housing, uh, do you have cockroach infestation in your home? If so, it's much more likely that you as a child will have asthma. Even social exclusion, we know more and more about the impact of people being part of a community and how that contributes positively to health as opposed to not being part of a community and feeling a lot of isolation and social stress. And then access to health services or disability also play a role. Those are, as I say, the social determinants of health. Another way to describe it is the opportunities and resources that people have to be healthy. And these are what is driving this uneven distribution of health in the US. And the fact that where you live can be now as strong a determinant of, of your health and how long uh, you are going to live as anything else. And in fact, uh, as this article that we published not too long ago in our journal said, in some states, life expectancy can vary by as much as 14 years based on the county that you live in. I'll come back to that in a bit. So again, we know lots of these factors of living conditions can make a difference. Uh, do you have lead exposure in your home? We know for a fact that lead exposure in children leads to lower IQs. We have uh, rock hard evidence about that poor ventilation, pest infestation I mentioned earlier, or even the characteristics of your physical environment, such as your access to parks, uh, the traffic conditions. We've published research at Health Affairs that clearly shows that school children who go to school next to highways have lower health status. Uh, are you close to a small farmer's market where you can get fresh fruits and vegetables, or are you living in a so-called food desert? Those things also make a difference. And as I mentioned earlier, the existence and the frequency of social ties also matters. The degree of trust and cooperation that you feel among your neighbors is linked to better physical and mental health. Uh, and stress, the level of stress. And we now also, for the first time in recent years, have just clear evidence understanding how mental stress actually impacts the body. We actually now have a very clear uh, physical, physiological delineation of how stress that you feel on the outside actually changes the functioning of your cells 
uh, and proteins and uh, leads to deleterious conditions in your health. And we see this uh, show up in many ways. This is just uh, to, just to take the factor of income for a moment. This is maybe a little hard to read. But this is uh, some uh, information from the National Vital Statistics that shows that uh, if you look at, at us uh, as a country classified by race, white, black, or Hispanic, poor or near poor, this is life expectancy at age 25. So it means how many years are you expected to live if you're, if you're already 25 years old? And you can see a, a difference between uh, whites and blacks uh, at every level, poor, near poor, uh, mid-income, high-income, et cetera, and uh, also but, uh, differences uh, between those groups and Hispanics. So we see very clearly these differences driven by different factors. Several years ago, a group of researchers at Harvard, the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, came up with a study that is described now as the Eight America Study. They looked at all of the data that we have on life expectancy and discovered that there isn't just one America in terms of life expectancy, there are eight different ones. That life expectancy varies in this country based on your race, your ethnicity, or your geographical location. And it really produces some unique patterns. At the high end, for example, if you're an Asian American baby girl born today in the Northeast, New Jersey and, the, and even this vicinity, your life expectancy is upwards of 90 years. It's close to 95 now at birth. Some of the longest uh, longevity of the world. Uh, by contrast, if you're a black male, a black male baby born today is gonna have an average life expectancy of just shy of 69 years. And if you're uh, living on an Indian reservation, you're gonna have a life expectancy of 58 years at best. So there's as much as a 33-year difference of life expectancy in this country, depending on who you are and where you are. Um, the main reason for that is sharply different rates of chronic disease. In the end, all Americans are dying mainly from several big factors. Cardiovascular disease, heart disease, number one, cancers, number two, and so on. But those conditions hit the different populations at different rates, different prevalence, and also at different stages of life. For the most part, for these uh, populations with low life expectancy, they hit much earlier in life. Now, that data that I just showed you was up to 2000. What happened from 2000 to 2007? Well, I'm sorry to say things got a little worse. Uh, if you compare all of the counties in the United States, there are more than 3,000, to an international standard of life expectancy in the 10 nations in the world that have the lowest mortality and the longest life expectancy. That's, we're not one of them, but if you compare us to that, those sort of gold standard nations, it turns out that from 2000 to 2007, in 80% of counties, we fell against that gold standard in terms of life expectancy in men. And in 91% of US counties, we fell against the standard for life expectancy in women. So in large, large uh, numbers of communities across this country, health status is getting worse. And again, a lot of it is due to those things that I described earlier. It's obesity, it's smoking, it's cancers that set in earlier than they should, or if at all, it's heart disease, et cetera. 
Uh, and now there are big variations among the population, but the overall picture is not good. And again, just to drive home this point a little bit more, what's driving, what, what are really are the drivers here? It's heart disease, a leading cause of preventable death. Tobacco smoking is still killing a lot of people in the country. That combination of poor diet and physical inactivity and even uh, alcohol consumption. Big, big drivers of preventable death. Now, in addition to that, we also know that these disparities in life expectancy continue to get larger. And they are also, in addition to being correlated to behavior, they're also highly correlated to education. And we just uh, uh, last month published this study that looked at life expectancy in 2008, depending on your level of education. And it turns out that in 2008, adult men and women who had fewer than 12 years of education, who didn't make it to the college or university level, didn't even graduate from high school, they had life expectancy about the same level as all American adults had in the 1950s, 60 years ago. So they, it is like they were living in the 1950s in, you know, uh, an era even pre-Elvis in terms of their life expectancy. Uh, and then when you combine race and education, you see these disparities even more strikingly. And here's just a uh, graphic that makes the same point. This shows you what life expectancy is at birth by years of education at age 25 and by race and sex. It's a, it's a complicated chart, but the basic thing to look at is you can see that as those lines get farther out to the right, as people have more years of education, their life expectancy goes up no matter what race they are. So Hispanic females with 16 or more years of education have a long, very long life expectancy. Uh, white females with more than 16 years of education, as you can see. So everybody lives longer if they've got more, level, more uh, years of education behind them. But even so, there are still these disparities. Look at the difference, say, between Hispanic females with 16 or more years and black males with 16 or more years. You can see uh, basically almost uh, close to a 15-year difference in life expectancy. So these intermingled factors of race and education seem to be playing a huge role in the relatively lower health status of many Americans. And it plays out even within states. This is a chart about uh, gaps in adult health status right here in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> it comes from a study that was done by a commission to build a healthy America that was uh, mounted a few years ago by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And if you look at it, you can see, uh, it's, again, this is a little bit hard to read, but on the, the, the left side, the words say, the percent of adults who are in less than very good health, and again, it's by years of education. So you can see that 69.7% of people in the state who have less than a high school uh, education have very poor health, relatively speaking. Whereas college graduates, there are many, many fewer of them who have very poor health. So again, it's making this point about this overlap between education uh, and race and, uh, and in some instances, income. So some uh, researchers up in Canada decided to put all of these learnings into a quick 10 tips for better health from the social determinants perspective. 
So you know the old 10 tips for better health, you know, don't smoke, uh, eat uh, three square meals a day, that kind of stuff. Here are the social determinants 10 tips for better health. Don't be poor. If you are poor, stop. Uh, if you can't stop being poor, try not to be poor for too long. Secondly, do not have poor parents. Avoid that at all costs. <clears throat> Own a car, what's that about? You could say, well, actually, shouldn't you be walking as opposed to dri driving around in a car? Excuse me, Mom. <clears throat> actually, that's about just having more, more mobility, being able to move around and get out of a bad neighborhood if you need to. Don't work in a stressful, low-paid manual job. <clears throat> Don't live in damp, low-quality housing. Try to be able to afford to go on vacation and sunbathe, get some vitamin D, take it easy. Practice not losing your job and don't become unemployed. Make sure you have access to benefits, especially if you're unemployed, <coughs> excuse me, retired or sick or disabled. And please don't live next to a busy major road or near a polluting factory. Follow all those tips and you'll have a much healthier life, the researchers were saying. Well, obviously that's tongue in cheek, but it underscores the main point. A lot of factors related to our health are outside of the control of many individuals. It's what I was saying earlier about it's not as easy as being able to go buy a VCR or a DVD. Some people really are just stuck. So let's look at something else, which is the role of health care and health insurance in this equation. Now we know that we live in the country with the highest uh, average spending on a per person basis on health care of any place in the world. And if you look at the left side of that chart, you'll see average spending on health care per capita. Look at that whole array of industrialized countries. Where are we? We're at the very top. We're spending uh, as of 2008, we were spending close to $8,000 a year per capita on health care versus all these other countries spending much less. As a share of the gross domestic product, we're spending much, much more than these other countries. So health care in the United States is uniquely costly and uniquely expensive. So we know that. We also know that uh, examining some of the research that has been done on this, the burden of all of this national health spending actually falls surprisingly heavily on the poorest families in America. More than 20% of family income uh, of the families in that lowest fifth of the income distribution, that is going to health care. Uh, and it's more than any other quintile, that is to say any other fifth of the income distribution. And this is how it shakes out. Uh, this is a percent of income, and if you look at that uh, second bar from the left, which is the lowest 20% of people in the population, if you count up what they pay in federal and state, the burden of federal and state tax expenditures on health care overall, and then direct spending in the states that essentially those folks are having to pay for, and their share of federal direct spending, in terms of what they pay in taxes and other things, you can see that they're spending essentially 6% of their incomes overall on, on uh, health care. And this is for people who have relatively very low incomes. So the burden of, on them is very, very great. 
We also know that there are lots of disparities in our health care system. We, um, we published a uh, issue on this uh, about a year ago looking at these disparities and it turns out that some of these disparities in the last number of years have actually grown worse. For example, for minorities treated for congestive heart failure. Some of the outcomes of the last few years are worse than they were even a few years before that. We don't really understand why because there's been a very concerted effort to try to narrow these disparities and how well people are treated within the healthcare system. But as I say, it looks like in some instances it's getting worse. We know that there are disparities uh, that are not just uh, having to do with race, but they also, again, have to do with education. They have to do with uh, insurance or not, and this is a, a chart that just makes that point. Uh, these are health disparities also for rural and urban populations as well. So you can see different levels of uh, health status based, again, on uh, location, on race, and so on. Now, let's talk a bit about health coverage. How do most Americans get their health insurance? This chart makes that point. As you can see, we're in a country of, this, these data now are about a year old, so we're a country, roughly speaking, of 300 million individuals. About half the population, as you see, gets coverage through employers. You're either getting it through the organization you work for or you're a dependent of a parent or somebody who gets it through an employer. Uh, some people buy private insurance on their own. That's, that's that little light gray sliver, that's 5%. Lots of people are on Medicare, close to 50 million now. That's the program for the elderly and the disabled. 17% of the population now is on Medicaid, and then 16% of the population is uninsured. That's the way the situation looks now. Uh, and then this is just another graphic that makes the point a somewhat different way. If we basically uh, talk about it in terms of the uninsured, you can see just under 16% of uninsured, about 32% total have either Medicare or Medicaid or they belong to the Veterans Administration or what have you. They're getting government-based uh, coverage. And then we have the employment-based as well as any employment, uh, private, uh, other form of private coverage. The, um, if we look just at the people who don't have health insurance at all, these are the latest numbers, again, out of the Census Bureau. You can see that about just under 16% of all Americans don't have health insurance, and about 9% of children still do not have insurance. Now, the good news is you can see just barely those numbers are starting to tick down. And that's due to a couple of factors. One reason is that a lot of people have gone on government coverage because of the weak economy, Medicaid in particular. Another factor is, uh, and some of you may be in this category, uh, because of the Affordable Care Act, children now can stay on their parents' policies up until the age of 26. And that has meant about 3 million young adults now have become newly covered through their parents' policies just over the last two years. So who are America's uninsured? There are a lot of people who fall through these uninsurance cracks. About three quarters of them are working people or they are dependents of a worker or they're in a family where at least one person is working full time. So strictly speaking, those folks aren't poor, 
they are what are sometimes referred to as the working poor or more properly the working low income. Because we know it's possible to work full time at say a minimum wage job and still be just barely above poverty. We also have about 10 to 12 million people in the country who are resident in the country who are not citizens, uh, who are not poor, but they're not citizens, and they also are not insured. We also know that with the exception of the last couple of years, as the health insurance uh, has grown more and more costly, the number of uninsured has been growing. And here. This, is, this chart just makes the point about the different levels of income among those who are uninsured. So you can see that about 25% of the uninsured have, make less than $25,000 a year. Another 21% are doing a little bit better. They're making between 25 and roughly 50,000. We've got about 15% of the uninsured who are really well off enough to buy health insurance. Uh, at least, and then we've got 7.8% of the uninsured who surely are well enough to buy health insurance, uh, and they're making, they have incomes of 75,000 or more. But you can see a big, big number, uh, basically that 25%, one out of four of the people without health insurance coverage is trying to get by on less than $25,000 a year. And again, if you think back to that median income chart, so that's about half the median income in the US. Uh, this chart just makes the point about how the numbers had been growing of total uh, uninsured individuals up until the most recent year. Now, you could say, well, is there really any bad effect from have, not having health insurance? The answer is yes. This pyramid comes from a study that is, was done by the Institute of Medicine back in 2003 and 2004 where they really wanted to dig into this question of what happens if you don't have health insurance. And they said, you know, there's a hierarchy of things that happen to you. The worst is that about 18,000 people die prematurely each year, basically because they didn't have health insurance. And what we know is if you don't have health insurance, you'll still get a lot of health care, but you tend not to get it in a very timely way. So that, for example, people who uh, women with cancer, women who discovered that they have a lump in their breast may decide to put it off, not go get, uh, to get a consultation and, uh, because they really can't afford it. They end up presenting at a hospital at a state where the, often the cancer has already metastasized. They have worse outcomes. And it's really very much linked to the fact that they don't have health insurance. So about 18,000 people a year are dying prematurely because they don't have health insurance. Then we have a whole lot of people uh, who are acutely ill, who get fewer services and they get less timely services. Same thing. They put off going to the hospital until they really need to go. Then we have 8 million chronically ill people who get fewer services and have higher morbidity, that means disease, sickness, and worse outcomes. Then we've got 41 million uninsured adults and children who are less likely to get preventive care. Uh, whether it's uh, if you're an, uh, uh, an adult woman, a uh, mammogram, uh, any other kind of screening. There are lots of routine screening that gets done for children to make sure that they don't have learning disabilities or other things. They're less likely to get those. We have 60 million uninsured individuals and families who have much less financial security and increased life stress. Over the course of my reporting career, I met people who applied for mortgages and got turned down because they didn't have health insurance. And the bank said to them, 
well, if you, don't, if you get sick, you could be bankrupted. You could not pay your mortgage. So we're not going to give you a mortgage until you get health insurance. And of course, they didn't have the means or the ability to do that. Then we have at the bottom, uh, or near the bottom, we've got people who live in communities where there are higher than average levels of health, uh, of health insurance. And in those communities, the evidence shows that the healthcare systems are overstressed and taxed because they've got so many people without health coverage who have health needs. And so even healthy and insured people in those communities are at risk for reduced availability of healthcare services. And then at the bottom of the period, pyramid, rather, there's all the rest of us, Americans who are cumulatively affected by these other things at the top of the pyramid. So there are real, real costs to many individuals specifically and to us as a series of communities of not of having high rates of uninsurance. This is what was one of the driving factors in the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And so when President Obama signed the legislation uh, into law in March of 2010, he said the act enshrines into law the core principle that everybody should have some basic security when it comes to their health care. Now that was unfortunately a bit of an exaggeration because we know that even when the law is fully phased in, there will probably still be about 20 million people in the country without health insurance, many of whom will be those undocumented immigrants I mentioned earlier. Uh, so not everybody's going to have basic health security, but we will be much farther down the road. And just to uh, recap for uh, those of you who probably don't walk around with this law committed to your memory, essentially what we plan to do as a country is expand coverage to about 32 million more Americans starting in 2014. Uh, about half of those folks 16 million, but it could be anywhere, frankly, between 8 and 22 million. We really don't quite know yet. But about 16 million, 17 million will go into an expanded Medicaid program. The other uh, 16 million will be people who are better off, as you could see from the numbers that I showed earlier, there are lots of better off people who will be able to buy private health insurance coverage through new marketplaces that will be created in every state known as exchanges. And they'll get federal government subsidies, tax credits, to help pay for that. So about half of the group goes into private health insurance, and about half goes into Medicaid. So when you hear people say Obamacare is about uh, government takeover of health care, you will know that that's wrong, because half of it is people going into private health insurance coverage. Uh, it's not socialized medicine. And we have a bunch of other things that are going to help make that happen uh, uh, around the topic of individual and employer mandates. But that's a, the, really the simplified structure on the coverage side. Then we also put in place, uh, or will be putting in place, a lot of insurance market reforms to make this possible. One of the most important of which is that pre-existing condition restrictions will not be able to be held against people such that they are excluded from buying health coverage. Right now, if you have a pre-existing condition, like for example, uh, cancer that is uh, in remission, it is virtually impossible for you, if you're not in a group insurance environment, to be able to buy coverage on your own. Uh, just a couple of years ago, we lifted those pre-existing condition restrictions against children. Now no child can be 
disallowed from getting insurance because of a pre-existing condition, like a congenital heart defect. As of 2014, there will be no more pre-existing condition restrictions held against anybody. Now, let's talk for a bit about Medicaid, because as you saw, about half of the population that will be newly covered will go into Medicaid. What is that program? Well, it was created back in 1965 as a program for the poor. But it turns out, because it's a joint program that's run by the federal government and the states, the federal government sets some basic parameters, but the states can actually vary from to some degree and cover certain populations and not others. And they can also make decisions about who's eligible for the program. So as a result of all of that, Rather than covering all of the poor, Medicaid has covered about half of the poor, those people who technically are at the federal poverty level or below. It also, though, covers a lot of other people. We've kind of glommed some things onto Medicaid over the years, and I'll show you a chart that makes that point in the moment, at a moment. And again, this is the program that will be expanded to cover 16, 17 million or so, uh, roughly speaking, more people starting in 2014. I mentioned that glomming on of different things that have been put into Medicaid over the years. It's true. Uh, health insurance coverage, 31 million children and 16 million adults in low-income families have coverage through Medicaid. Also, 16 million elderly people and people with disabilities have Medicaid. Uh, also, Medicaid also helps people who are on Medicare pay some of their bills. There are nine million of those who get help that way. There are lots of people in nursing homes and in long-term care who are on Medicaid. 1.6 million in nursing homes, 2.8 million disabled elderly people largely who are living in the community but getting Medicaid services. Uh, Medicaid also essentially helps to shore up the safety net in this country, that is the whole system of public hospitals and community health centers. Uh, basically, uh, Medicaid is paying the bill for 16% overall of all of our national health spending and 40% of long-term care services. About half of the cost of nursing home care in the U.S. is paid for by Medicaid. This, the federal government varies the contributions that it makes to various states. Uh, it can pay as much as half the bill, uh, or I should say uh, as low as half the bill for Medicaid in some states, all the way up to 83% of the bill in some states, depending on the poverty level of the state. It plays a really critical role for certain individuals. You can see 43% of the poor have Medicaid coverage, 26% of the near poor. 34% of uh, all children in the country now are covered by Medicaid. 40% uh, in some states, 50% of all the births every year are paid for by Medicaid. 22% of low-income adults, as you see, 45% of births overall. Uh, Aged and disabled, I mentioned those folks, people living with HIV AIDS, 47% of them are covered by Medicaid, et cetera, and as you see, 70% of nursing home residents. So it's a big and very important program. Now, I mentioned that the eligibility levels have been very varied around the states, and the people who've had the least likelihood of getting enrolled in Medicaid, you can see there at the zero level, it's childless adults. If you are a poor adult 
without children in a state like Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, you don't have Medicaid. Why? A lot of those states have stuck with an old kind of welfare mentality, which basically says, well, if you're a poor adult you really, and you don't have kids, you really ought to be an able-bodied person working. So we're really not going to help you if you don't have an excuse. We'll help pregnant women, and you can see uh, children who are in families up to 250% of the federal poverty level, two and a half times the federal poverty level in many states are covered. We've decided to be generous with children, but we're not very generous with, as you see, uh, either working parents or jobless parents or childless adults. What the Affordable Care Act would do is move up the eligibility level, and you can see that line a dotted line, it's moving up to that 133, or sometimes it's said 138% of the federal poverty level, so that more of those working parents can get coverage, and more of those jobless parents, and more of those childless adults, and even more elderly and individuals with disabilities, so that more of them will be able to get coverage through Medicaid, and they will go off the uninsurance rolls that many of them are now on. That is the point of the coverage expansion uh, through Medicaid in the Affordable Care Act. Now, as I said when I started out, um, this is the part of the Supreme Court decision that took everybody by surprise because of what it said. One of the issues, of course, the Supreme Court had to decide various things about the Affordable Care Act. Was the so-called individual mandate to have coverage, was that constitutional? They said yes, uh, it was, uh, by a very narrow vote, five to four, but yes, it was. Um, and, but when it came to the Medicaid expansion, uh, which everybody had pretty much expected they would say, yes, that was totally constitutional, here's what happened. Uh, Actually, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that the Medicaid expansion, as it was structured in the law, was unconstitutional because there was a provision in the law that said to the states, if you do not expand, expand your Medicaid coverage for the, these populations up to 133% of the poverty level, we're going to take away all your federal Medicaid dollars from you. And the, what the court said was that threat was unconstitutional. It was overly coercive of the states. So what Justice Roberts then did, though, was he said, but we can remedy this lack of constitutionality because we can tell the Secretary of Health and Human Services that she can't threaten the states with cutting off all of their funding. So we'll just tell her and we're telling her now, they said, you can't threaten the states. They, uh, if they don't want to expand Medicaid, you cannot cut off all of their Medicaid funding. The, with that proviso, Justice Roberts wrote, the Medicaid expansion is constitutional. But as you see, in effect, what he was doing was saying to the states, they have an option now not to pursue the expansion if they choose not to do that, and the federal government cannot come back and punish them by withholding all of their Medicaid funding. So a very different decision than anybody expected. What immediately happened at that point was that uh, governors in many states said, well, if the court says it's optional, we're not going to do it. So in Louisiana, Bobby Jindal, who's at the, at the top picture there, said, 
we're not going to expand Medicaid coverage to that population. Rick Perry in Texas said, we're not going to expand Medicaid coverage to that population. They argue that uh, they, this would impose costs on the states. Now, what is actually the case is that for this new expanded population, for the first three years, the federal government pays the entire cost of the Medicaid expansion. Then it drops down to 95%, which is paid by the federal government. And then it ends up at 90% paid for by the federal government. So the states, at most, will only have to pay for 10% of the cost of covering this new population. So the states, in effect, get a pretty good deal. Why, if the states are getting a good deal, did these governors say they don't want to do that? We don't really know. Some people think it's because they are negotiating with the federal government for some major changes in the program to restructure it into what's called a block grant, which would mean that the federal government would just send the state's checks every year and say, you take care of it. You figure out, here's your money. You figure out how many people you want to cover. They may be doing that. Uh, some people thought that Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana, was trying to get on the presidential ticket as the vice presidential nominee, so he wanted to uh, say that he wasn't going to go along with the Medicaid expansion. Who knows? But in any case, we have a bunch of governors now saying they're not going to move forward to expand the population of those on Medicaid. Now, this is playing out politically in an interesting way in many states. In Texas, where the governor has said he doesn't want to expand the population, some of the counties that have high numbers of uninsured people and are running public hospitals to take care of many of these people have basically called up Washington and said, well, if the governor doesn't want it, could we come and get Medicaid expanded anyway? Can we cut a deal with you in some way? Uh, none of this is going to be resolved before the election. But we will see how things play out after the election, uh, depending, of course, on who wins the presidency and who's in the Congress. We'll see what happens with the Medicaid expansion. What is really interesting is uh, to think for a bit about the people who are actually affected by this. And the uh, best uh, description that I've ever seen uh, Elizabeth mentioned earlier that I sit on the Kaiser Commission on Medicaid and the Uninsured, as I do. And we put out this book that's called The Faces of Medicaid that tries to sort of capture the stories of some of the people who are dependent on the program. Here's one of them, uh, Kay Dickerson. She's 57 years old. She, her husband, as you see, is Tom. <coughs> oh, thank you. Um, I, I think my allergies are kicking in, so forgive me. Um, they were victims of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, they were relocated after Hurricane Katrina to Portland, Oregon in 2005. And Kay, uh, they were able to get to see a doctor. And she was diagnosed with anxiety, uh, depression, PTSD, high blood pressure, and diabetes. She'd been uninsured for many, many years. <clears throat> but when she got to Oregon, she was able to enroll in Medicaid in Oregon, called the Oregon Health Plan. And so now, just a few years later, she's actually in reasonably good health. She's been getting therapy that helped her gain a lot of coping skills to deal with her depression and her anxiety. 
uh, her prescription medicine is, medication is covered, her blood pressure is under control, et cetera. So she is really a kind of a Medicaid success story. Um, this, here's another story, Brenda Christensen, former hospice nurse who has an 11-year-old daughter. She just had a, just a terrible story. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in May of two years ago. She had just started a new nursing job. She wasn't yet qualified for coverage because as you know, when you go to work for a new employer, sometimes you have to wait three months or six months before you get coverage. She was eventually laid off uh, from her job and basically stuck. Cancer, no health insurance. She's uh, now eligible for full Medicaid benefits through a program in Medicaid called the Breast and Cervical Cancer Prevention and Treatment Program. <clears throat> Uh, right now, her only income is from her unemployment benefits. But Medicaid stepped in, covered a hospital stay, covered a mastectomy, $25,000 in chemo, uh, and total cancer costs of about $100,000. Uh, so really, in a way, kind of a miracle. She's now interviewing for jobs. Uh, and last, we were in touch with her at the Kaiser Commission. She was really hopeful something was going to come through fairly soon. Here's another face of Medicaid. This little boy is Caleb Garcia. He was five when this photo was taken. His father, Manuel, uh, uh, they live in Dallas, Texas. Caleb uh, was born disabled because his, his mother had contracted a virus during pregnancy. Um, the parents have since split up. Medicaid pays for 45 hours of nursing care a week for this little boy. And the father, a happy story, he just got private health insurance for the first time because he got promoted in his job as a restaurant manager. So he's covered now, thank goodness, and Caleb is covered through Medicaid and will be probably for most of the rest of his life. So these are just some of the faces of the people who are actually beneficiaries of the program. Um, these are the people, you know, uh, Manuel Garcia was arguably a, one of the working low-income people until he got lucky enough to rise up through the ranks and get promoted to be manager and, and get health coverage. But as you can imagine, millions and millions of Americans are going through this uh, every day. And as you saw, just to back up and go back to uh, uh, Brenda here, you know, sometimes stuff happens in life. <clears throat> you can be employed uh, and uh, in getting along just fine and the combination of circumstances, getting cancer, <clears throat> losing your job can really throw you for a loop, and that's why there are programs like this to step in and help. Well, naturally, a lot of people are exercised about this fact that some of the governors are threatening to uh, bail on Medicaid, and some of them are faith leaders. And just literally within the last couple of weeks, a large group of faith leaders put out this statement on Medicaid, and they said that depriving struggling families of health care is wholly incompatible with the teachings of our faiths and the ideals of our nation. And politicians who put political ideology before the well-being of their constituents neglect their moral duty as leaders. So they said, we call on governors who are considering refusing or have already refused to accept the Affordable Care Act's expansion of Medicaid to put the well-being of their constituents ahead of their political ideology and accept the Medicaid funding. And there was a long list of signatories from Christian churches from, uh, there were uh, uh, members of the, uh, the Islamic community, there were members from uh, the, uh, the Jewish community, all kinds of people came together to sign on to this. 
And of course, we know that the callings of all the great faiths uh, call all of us to serve uh, the poor and the needy. Uh, the hadith of the prophet Muhammad says, whoever is kind to the creatures of God is kind to himself. That's a, sort of a variation on the golden rule. Uh, zakah or zakat, as some call it, almsgiving, is one of the five pillars of Islam, the charitable giving of a small percentage of one's possessions to the poor and the needy. In Judaism, the notion of tzedakah, helping the poor and needy, is a duty of the faith. And if uh, any of you have been to a traditional Jewish home, you know that there's commonly this little pushka, a box uh, there to collect co coins for the poor uh, on both a real basis, but also a symbolism to show, that, remind us that we, that uh, remind those who are Jewish that they have this duty. And then of course we know those uh, of us who are Christian, a guy that we know well once said, so as you do unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do unto me. That we were, are called uh, as deep adherents of this particular faith also to minister to those in need. So there's where I would like to leave it uh, because I think as you have seen, as I have walked through the poor health status of so many Americans. The, so questions, comments, don't be shy. There's no such thing as a ignorant question. Yes, back here.
Well, you're making two, at least two excellent points, uh, probably more. But one point is that poverty is a relative definition, right? Because poverty here in the US, I said this briefly earlier, poverty in the US is really a different thing entirely from the poverty that, that is experienced by many people in your nation or elsewhere on the continent of Africa. So, and we understand that, it is relative. Um, that level of income that we consider at the poverty level would be a, a very good standard of living in much of Sub-Saharan Africa. So that's certainly the case. It's also the case, as you said, that, and as the, uh, some of my presentations spoke to, there are lots of creature comforts that are widely had by even the populations of people that we consider poor. No question about that. But the other thing that you said is also true. It's that the highest levels of obesity are concentrated in our lower income population. And the lower levels of health status overall are very much correlated with the level of education. So precisely as you said, if people were to become more highly educated, their health status would go up, their income would go up, and so one of the articles that I cited that we ran recently by uh, Jay Olshansky said, one of the most important interventions we could make for Americans to improve their health is to make sure that they are well-educated, to improve the quality of our schools at every level. And even, as you could see, get more people even to go to college. This is why a college education has benefits well beyond just your income. People who are better educated take better care of themselves. Health-wise, it's just demonstrably the case. So exactly as you say, a very important intervention will not be on the healthcare side. It will be on the education side. And the highest Yes, yes, great. Well, thank you. Excellent points. Yes, over here. I, uh, I just saw a long time ago, I said, I, I love the PowerPoint. I thought, I've never seen that many facts about you know, Obamacare, ever. And um, could you go back to the Jesus slide? <coughs> it's just, it's uh, yeah. So uh, I feel that uh, I came to a Catholic university to like expand my faith, kind of. And uh, I kind of feel it's my duty as a Catholic to like give to the poor. But um, the way I disagree with you is I don't feel like it's my duty as an American to give to the poor. Like uh, nowhere in the Constitution do you have like the duty to take care of the poor, the duty to give anything. So like personally as a Catholic, I really, and like as a wealthier person, before the kind of bill, no, I should really be given to the poor, I should be helping people out however I can. But, um, but if someone wasn't in such a good situation as me, uh, their taxpayer dollars still have to go to these poor people. I thought, uh, well, I didn't catch your name, but the, the last girl who spoke said it, said it great. Like, these people are in poverty. Like, poverty is not making $30,000 a year. That's not poverty. That's, that's just low income. So I think if, if you're making $30,000 a year, you're, uh, you can't afford things I can. You can't afford a car, but that's not poverty. Uh, I'm a member of the water polo team here, and we adopted a kid from the South American uh, country of Bolivia, and we have to pay $38 a month. And uh, we have to send letters uh, once a month 
And he says it's like bad. It's like a it's a great relationship we have with him. So thirty eight dollars a month. The way they put it is, is we saved his life because without that he would have no food. His uh, his father was killed. He uh, he was buried by you know bad people there. And by us doing this, we're saving his life. We're giving him education. And our goal is to actually go down there and meet him and visit him and try to help as many as we can. And I heard that real poverty. Like for thirty-eight dollars a month, if I gave someone like that's not doing well in the center of Philadelphia, thirty-eight dollars a month, they would, that, that's insignificant. To them. Maybe thirty thousand dollars a year was thirty-eight dollars a month. But if you give this to, to Bolivia, that, that's changing someone's life. So I find that Obamacare is just—it's making people comfortable being poor. Well, well, thank, well, thank you for that. Well, just to um, put a couple more facts on the table, so thirty thousand dollars a year, thirty thousand dollars is is not the poverty level. I think when you saw thirty, thirty thousand for a family of four is one hundred thirty-three percent of poverty. So that's above the poverty level. So that so a family of four that had thirty thousand dollars of income a year would be eligible to be in this expanded Medicaid program. Now, to put that in context, in my area, Washington, D.C., the, uh, the local authorities, metropolitan authorities, say that the actual poverty level in Washington, D.C. is $50,000 for a family of four because housing costs are so high. And now, just to lay another fact on you, what do you think the average price is of a health insurance policy for a family of four nowadays? Can you guess? It's upwards of $12,000. So a family of four that had $30,000 of income uh, is going to be spending at least uh, $15,000 a year on housing, right? And then another $12,000 a year for health insurance so that would leave that family $3,000 to live on, to buy food, clothing, recreation, whatever else, right? It's not possible. It's not possible. That's why there is a Medicaid program, because the way the situation is now, that family is above the Medicaid eligibility level, has no financial ability to buy health insurance coverage and is basically not able to access the healthcare system. That's the problem. So it gets back to this notion of, you know, where I started my talk, who are we gonna call the neediest among us? You know, it gets squishy. It gets difficult when people have got VCRs and so forth and so on. It's, but it's why I say health and healthcare is in a different box, because it is so expensive. And if we don't basically pool our money together to help this family, it's not, the family is not going to get coverage. And that, then we go back to the situation, remember that pyramid, where are we willing to stand by as a country and say, you know what, for those people who are a little bit above the poverty level, you know what, you, you die prematurely because you didn't have access to healthcare, sorry, that's just the way it goes. You can't get a mammogram, really sorry about that lady, I just don't wanna pay for that. 
You know, that's, those are the questions that, the, that, those are the implicit answers we're giving if we're not, if we don't act this way. That's really the issue. You had on the pyramid 18,000 people a year die prematurely, correct? Yeah. That's six one thousandth of percent of the American population. More people die from smoking, as you had on the previous slide before that. More people die from obesity. So. But 18,000 is the equivalent of a serious cancer. You know, it's not insignificant. And it's something that's very fixable, right? Okay, well, you're tough. <laughs> you're a tough, you're tough. Um, yeah, I mean, if, you, if we had a plane blow up tomorrow and 18,000 people were killed, believe me, we'd be reading about it for the next several years, right? Right, that's, so. Anyway, it's, um, but I, I will come back. I mean, you're, you have put your finger on a national debate that we're having now, which really is, you know, what is our responsibility? And, uh, you know, they, uh, there's a wonderful book that was written years ago by a guy named Joe Ellis called Founding Brothers. And it's about the founding fathers of the, of our country who were pretty young at the time and they were close which is why the book is called founding brothers not founding fathers because these guys a lot of them were in their 20s and 30s but it talks about how a big tension that's been running through american life and that goes back to those early days when the brothers were debating this is what is america all about is it all about individual rights and is it all about liberty or is it about creating a new nation a special community, a new Jerusalem, you know? And we have this tension that's been going through our country since the very beginning. What are we about? Are we about individual rights and liberties only? Are we about community and responsibility for each other? And we tend to sort of tack back and forth. Even some of our, even our, in our own consciences, sometimes we drift more to the one side or the other. But that's what the whole nation is about. As I say, I think a lot of the, us who not only understand that debate and those tensions, but also who are motivated at all by a faith perspective say, we really have to do this because we don't really want to live in the world where we say, it doesn't matter to me if 18,000 people die prematurely because they didn't have health coverage. Certainly not in a world where so many people do have that privilege. Well, it'd be interesting to put it, put it up to a vote and see how the audience feels because, I, as I say, I think you've perfectly captured the discussion that we're now having as a nation. So, thank you. Yep. Yes. Hi, good evening. My name is Kelly Nester, and I'm faculty in college. I guess my question goes back to paying poverty <coughs> on the state level and with the Medicare expansion, as well as um, food stamps, quick, all the things. Um, with the Affordable Care Act, do folks look at limiting what people can buy with food stamps, like they do with WIC? Because we talk about nutritional education, um, food security, and things like that. There's, with WIC, you can buy certain cereals, right? Fruits, vegetables, but with food stamps, you can buy I'm 
PC. It, it did not come up in the context of the Affordable Care Act, but that debate did surface this year in the Farm Bill, uh, believe it or not. Um, yep. And, and it's now called SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Um, you know, I'll, I won't shock you by telling you that there are huge commercial interests that don't want those limits put on the food stamps. Yeah, right. Um, and that, that, so that has not been successful to date to limit what uh, the food stamps can buy. But there are many people who would like to see that happen, or who would like to see even a different approach, which is uh, you know more 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 generous allowances for fruits and vegetables and a much lower allowance for non-healthy foods. But it's another battle that I suspect will be fought for a long time, and again because of the, the commercial interests. Yeah. So, well, one more. Okay, let's go take this last one. My name is Sean Pettit, I'm a senior at the College of Nursing. I just had a quick question. First of all, I've learned a lot about the Affordable Care Act tonight that I didn't know at all, um, which I thought was great. Uh, concerning chronic illnesses with the un uninsured and underinsured, are there any programs that are being brought forward in the Affordable Care Act, along with Medicaid or other programs that are going to um, with uh, medical services and screenings for chronic patients? Because it seems like most of the uh, most of the population issues with the underinsured and the uninsured seem to be most of the chronic illnesses. Right, right. As it is for most Americans, yeah. And that and that's most of our health care bill now. Three quarters of what we spend on health care we spend on chronic illness. Yes, there are quite a number of provisions. One is, uh, for example, already gone into effect under Medicare and under all private health insurance now uh, that is sold. There can be no cost-sharing provisions for a lot of preventive services. So, for example, if your grandmother is on Medicare and she needs a mammogram now, she doesn't have to pay any copayment to get that mammogram. She doesn't have to pay any deductible. That's all included in her policy. Same with private coverage on mammography uh, and, and colonoscopies and other, a number of other screening procedures now have 100% coverage and will for the population that buys coverage in the future through exchanges, as well as for the Medicaid population. So part of the Affordable Care Act is really shifting the balance toward a more preventive healthcare model as well, uh, in the hope that we'll, catch, we'll prevent more disease and catch more disease early. So that's very much a part of the law. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being with all of you.